Compliance, the final frontier. Tom Fox is the voyager of trekking through compliance. His mission: to explore the original series and seek out and share what it can teach you about compliance. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm going to be doing several follow-on podcast special series based upon my summer series of Trekking Through Compliance. Today we start a five-part podcast series on some of the science around Star Trek. In this exploration, I'm joined by my good friend Ben Lockwin. Ben is a healthcare futurist, and he's also an astrophysicist, so he's uniquely situated to talk about the science of Star Trek. We had a lot of fun producing this series, and I hope you will enjoy it, listening to it as much as Ben and I did bringing it to you. In this episode one, we take a look at the episode Mirror, Mirror, and use it to discuss transporters. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again with Ben Lockwin for another episode where we take uh, an episode of Star Trek, the original series, and uh, talk about it a little bit in the, in the context of some of the science, the pseudoscience, the non-science, or perhaps others, and see uh, what it may portend. So, Ben, uh, first of all, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. It's good to be back. Feels like it's been a long week already. <laughs> well, Ben, today I wanted to use the episode Tomorrow is Yesterday as a starting point uh, to talk about some things such as black holes, white holes, and my favorite science fiction construct, wormholes. And to, in Tomorrow is Yesterday, uh, the Enterprise was thrown back into Earth uh, time frame in the 1960s by the effects of what it called a high-gravity black star. Uh, the Enterprise got uh, did not know it was there, got sucked into it, and then had to blast out with its warp engines, and in doing so, uh, engaged in time travel back to uh, the mid-60s. The Enterprise ended up in the upper atmosphere of the uh, uh, United States, continental United States and was picked up as a UFO on uh, uh, military radar. A F-4 interceptor was sent up to investigate um, the plane. Uh, the Enterprise saw the plane fearing an attack. The Captain Kirk ordered a tractor beam uh, to be used on the plane. The plane's... Um, thin veneer, uh, the tractor beam just disintegrated it, and the captain of the uh, plane, uh, Captain John Christopher, was beamed aboard the Enterprise. Uh, the Enterprise worked to um, get back to its original time frame, and to do so, they came up with the idea that they would um, warp out of the Earth's uh, atmosphere towards the sun, our sun, and then uh, by using a slingshot method, would use the gravity of the sun to whip around the sun, uh, kick in the warp drive, and uh, return to their own time. Of course, uh, as with all uh, Enterprise or Star Trek episodes, the maneuver was very risky, and even a small miscalculation could have destroyed the ship and ended the series. So um, Kirk, uh, however, does approve the maneuver, and the uh, Enterprise is successful, and time starts to move backwards this allows them to return Captain Christopher to his plane immediately before it disintegrated and allowed the uh, Enterprise to successfully return to the 23rd century. So um, I guess we do get to start with uh, black holes because that's something that is now, uh, I think, 
fairly well um, known and understood. But uh, you want to start there, or do you want to start somewhere else? No, that sounds great. So let's see. We, we've got to presume that um, the, the screenwriters for the show meant black hole when they talked about a black star. Um, so the, you know, the name black hole itself was one that was coined by physicist John Wheeler. And, um, you know, Einstein and others had some tremendous problems with the idea uh, of black holes existing. So um, let me explain what it is first. So a black hole is what you're left with after you've got so much mass occupying uh, a small unit of space that um, its gravity becomes so strong that not even light can escape it. So where these things uh, tend to originate from is from collapsing stars of uh, varying high masses. So as a star approaches the end of its life cycle, um, what happens is uh, it's, it burns fuel differently throughout different phases of its life cycle. And um, generally what you would be left over in a lot of cases is um, a, a star shrinking down to a white dwarf star. And what Subramanian Chandrasekhar uh, discovered in 1930 was that if you've got a white dwarf that has a certain amount of mass left over after it's done its uh, dying process and shedding of mass, if it's left with 1.44 solar masses, so 1.44 times the mass of our sun, left over after this, it doesn't have uh, enough internal energy to prevent further collapse and so then it will become either a neutron star or a black hole. So in sequence, what's happening is you've got this star that's, you know, at least 1.44 times the mass of our sun left over uh, as it's approaching the end of its life cycle. And it would like to collapse more. But at the moment, what's called electron degeneracy pressure is holding it together. So... Um, the Pauli exclusion principle prevents certain subatomic particles uh, of the same quantum properties from op occupying the same space. So because this is mathematically forbidden, the electron pressure is what's holding the star up. But once it exceeds this mass threshold, there's uh, no way to stop further collapse, and it collapses down. Uh, the next phase down would be, as I mentioned, a neutron star, where now you've got a star that essentially is made of just crushed uh, composite neutrons. And so this would be the most smooth object in the universe, I think, that uh, we probably could ever find. So you've got something that's trying to contract in all directions. And why gravitationally bound objects like planets, for example, form spheres is because the... Uh, most viable way to occupy a volume of space most efficiently is in the form of a sphere. So now you've got so much mass and density in a very small volume of space that it's essentially forming a virtually perfect sphere. If there's still too much mass for this neutron core uh, to hold up with what's called neutron degeneracy pressure, it continues to collapse down uh, into a black hole. And so this becomes a point at which it uh, essentially pinches off through the fabric of space-time. So it forms around itself, um, which you may have heard about, called uh, an event horizon. And this essentially is a shroud uh, beyond which no light uh, or matter or energy of any kind can escape that's passed through this event horizon. Um, 
if you were to fly to the event horizon and try to proceed through it, uh, you would be able to pass into the black hole. Um, and then there's a process that Kip Thorne, uh, who's a famous astrophysicist who uh, helped come up with the idea of wormholes uh, from your intro, he talks about, it's called spaghettification, where the tidal forces as you enter the black hole become so great that, um, let's say you go through uh, head first, your, uh, the gravitational forces at the top of your head are so much greater than those at your feet because your feet are further away from the core of the black hole that you essentially get stretched out into uh, a string of atoms on your way into getting crushed at the singularity. Um, so that being what a black hole is, um, you know, I think some of this brings us back too to the, the previous episode we talked about with time travel um, in this one. You know, I think uh, there are some relativistic effects that we have to be concerned about uh, it, it's interesting because the gravity at the limb of a black hole is so high that if you could travel to just outside the event horizon and keep firing the thrusters on your rocket, the gravity is so strong there that time is going to pass slower for you than others who are outside the proximity of the black hole where they're under influence of its gravity. And um, this could be quite a substantial effect. Uh, this was used in the movie Interstellar with Matthew McConaughey. Um, where they used some of this uh, gravitational well uh, effect in order to uh, change some of the, the time effects for the actors and for the storyline. Um, I think, you know, if we think about uh, how this all might fit together, it's interesting because um, the first black hole that was ever imaged, I think, was in 1971, and, um, you know, like I said earlier, Einstein thought that it just wouldn't be possible to have a black hole. It would be too strange for Mother Nature to allow black holes to exist. But um, in April um, of this year, we have gotten pictures of the shadow of a black hole for the first time ever. So typically in the past, what we would do is try to image the centers of galaxies and look for tremendously high masses in compact volumes that would indicate the presence of a black hole. And uh, now we've got some of our first images that have come out in 2019 of this. So we seem to have irrefutable evidence that, uh, as strange as they are, black holes, you know, absolutely do exist. Um, you know, the question becomes, can they be used uh, to create a wormhole or to travel in time? Well, certainly you could fiddle around with time travel, like I said, if you get close enough to one and you're in the gravitational limb, time will pass much more slowly for you which means you could then proceed into everyone else's future because time has passed more slowly. Everyone else has aged around you. Um, but I think typically when we talk about sci-fi, that's not what, what folks mean. You know, Can you travel through a wormhole from one place to another? Um, you know, Mathematically, this is something that people have wrestled with for quite some time. As I mentioned, Kip Thorne, uh, who was science advisor in the movie Interstellar, he uh, was a professor at Caltech. He did some of the early equations on wormholes and um, tried to figure out how they could potentially be possible. And after he looked at them for quite some time in the early 90s, tried to figure out uh, reasons why they should remain improbable. So we don't tend to have a lot of evidence that wormholes exist. Um, and if you run the equations, it looks like 
if a wormhole did pop up somewhere, it would be tremendously tenuous. And the only thing that would seem to keep a wormhole open in some sense that we could somehow use it for space-time travel would be uh, negative mass. And, um, you know, that's at the moment just a sci-fi trope. We don't actually know what negative mass would look like. And uh, so at the moment, I think we're sufficiently protected from time travel like this through wormholes. Unfortunately, maybe, depending on what your bent is. But um, Stephen Hawking in in, uh, 2011 uh, had written about, well, in the past he had done so too, but talked about space tourists. And he talked about uh, what he called the chronology protection conjecture, which is essentially that Mother Nature tries to protect the overall chronology of the universe. And uh, his... His uh, Hawking's cutting quote was, you know, if time travel's possible, then where are all the tourists from the future? So they should be basically overrunning us now. If there was a way in the future for us to travel back to our past, which is currently now, why don't we see future tourists all over the place? And so it seems to most physicists at the moment that somehow the universe prevents um, any sort of time paradoxes from existing. And, um, you know, again, I think it's certainly a fun concept to think about. And, um, you know, one of the interesting ones is the grandfather paradox. So if you go back in time uh, and kill your grandfather, would that prevent you from being born so that you could never go back and kill your grandfather? And, uh, you know, I think because that presents serious philosophical problems to the universe... Uh, it doesn't seem that time travel, um, time travel, at least as we envision it in science fiction, is uh, a real thing. Though it certainly is true that if you travel at uh, different rates of speed, you can record different times elapsing. People who fly um, at high velocity, uh, we've done this before via uh, NASA and Air Force experiments, very sensitive clocks can, even at the low rates of speed that we achieve currently relative to the speed of light, can demonstrate that the time dilation effect is exactly within the confidence intervals that um, Einstein's relativistic equations would predict. So time is flowing slower uh, the higher the speed that you're traveling at. So if you were to travel at very high rates of speed in a rocket ship, uh, you would indeed have time passing slower for you than others. So in that sense, sure, there is time travel going on relative to you and others. Ben, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time, but this has been yet another fascinating exploration, and I look forward uh, to, to continuing the conversation. Thanks. Me too, Tom. If you enjoyed this episode of Trekking Through Compliance, you can help it grow by sharing it with the biggest Trek fan you know. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.